Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for December 5th, 2023. Winding down towards the end of the year. Can't believe uh, it's been another year uh, already. Uh, yeah, pretty decent w- week this week. Not as big as last week. 17 books last week, 10 this week. Uh, although there are a couple of anthologies. Uh, but overall, I thought it was a decent week. Um, some things really stood out in a good way and others not so much. So what did you think of the week overall, Rocky? Well, I'm uh, pleased that we got a good that we got a good holiday issue. Actually, a Batman Santa Claus Silent Night was actually a decent uh, decent s- series that's going to start the season off. And uh, uh, maybe maybe Beast World supplements are a little bit disappointing, but beyond that, uh, uh, there's some pleasant surprises here. Uh, not as good as last week, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts as we get going here. So, yeah, yeah, for me the the Beast World tie-ins, I thought one was good, one not so much, but there was. Something else that I liked about what they did, I'll talk about that when we get there. Uh, but we'll kick it off with Blue Beetle number four. This continues to be a fantastic series. Josh Trujillo is the writer. Adrian Gutierrez on art. Will Quintana and Nick Filardi on colors for this issue. Lucas Catani doing the letters. We saw last issue that um, Jaime had a chance to maybe use a, a, a final solution, if you will. He, uh, he, he had a chance to possibly kill the blood scarab, the wielder of the blood scarab. And, and he hesitated, uh, ended up fleeing him and Tracy 13. And now he's dealing with sort of the aftermath of that, wondering if it was the right choice. You know, he's talking to uh, members of the horizon. You know, one specifically Ula, I think her name is um, about, kind of her world and, you know, different values and what have you. And he's, he's wondering if he made it a, made a mistake by not taking out the, the blood scarab. He doesn't know what to think. He's confused. So as much as the first Jaime Reyes series was Trujillo really showing us that Jaime had sort of leveled up, you know, he wasn't just a, a kid an inexperienced hero. Um, you know, he had experience. He was learning. This is, is in a way a little bit of a step back because he is confused. He's not sure what to do. He talks to Starfire, you know, her being much more of the traditional DC type superhero. Of course, saying, yeah, you know, warriors find a better way, blah, 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 which, you know, you look at what Wonder Woman's choice was with Maxwell Lord back in the day. I don't know if that's even in continuity anymore or not, but that, you know, when you, I hear the word warrior, that's often who I think of. You know, I think of Wonder Woman, like, well, Wonder Woman is willing to kill. Starfire's telling Jaime not to. And, and Jaime makes a good point. He's like, yeah, um, but I couldn't live with myself if somebody that I really cared about got hurt because I, you know, I just put this villain in the revolving door of, you know, whatever the justice system is like in the DC universe. So it's it's interesting. He's sort of struggling with, with what to do. So I like that. It, it, this is a little bit of a, t- a talking head issue. There's not a ton of action. Um, so it, it's kind of set up for what comes next. And, and we do get a hint that the, uh, the blood scarab is not the big bad. There's somebody kind of behind it pulling the strings, pulling his strings, even to the point where maybe we'll find out that the wielder of the blood scarab is doing it against his will. And he's not even really a bad guy at all, which then, you know, reinforces what Starfire was saying about, yeah, you, you never know someone's circumstances. That's why you shouldn't kill that sort of thing. So uh, we'll see how it all works out because the issue ends with, uh, with Jaime going to Victoria court and saying, uh, Hey, you know, and Victoria Cord not very happy with with uh, 
with Jaime, obviously, because her brother's missing. Jaime doesn't know where he is, although he had a part in um, kind of hiding Ted Court, I guess, in the, in the secret location, I guess is the best way to say it. But anyway, he goes to Victoria Court and says, yeah, if you were looking to, to kill me, what would you do? Because, you know, he's looking to do the same to, to the wielder of the blood scarab, perhaps. So, yeah, interesting to see where it's going to go. The art uh, is pretty good, especially the color work. Although I feel like, and I've said this in the past, Adrian Gutierrez is doing that ink splatter thing. And at times I think it works and at other times it doesn't work as well. And I feel like when it doesn't work as well is when it's just black. You know, no matter what the background color is, the ink splatter is just black. It works a little better in previous issues when it was multicolored. And even in this issue, when it shows up with Victoria Cord using a flamethrower to take out a bouquet of flowers... <laughs> gotta read this to understand what I'm talking about. Uh, but on that page, the ink splatter is multicolored, and I think it works better. When it's just black, especially in this issue where there's not a lot of action, it just ends up making the art feel a little, little messy. Um, and the other thing that I'm going to mention, uh, because I couldn't help, I couldn't help but notice it. It was so weird. Uh, in the very last panel of the book, when Jaime is floating there in front of um, Victoria Court, and he's seen in silhouette. Uh, they don't make the best choice with the way the silhouette looks, like with its placement on the body of Blue Beetle. And that's all I'm going to say. Uh, you can go <laughs> look at it for yourself and see what I'm talking about. So anyway, uh, what do you think about this issue, Rocky? Well, I actually thought it's so funny that you never mentioned the one thing. I, I, I know you read it, obviously, because you hinted at it, but you never said the words, but I'll say it. Romance. There's romance oh, in this issue. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of yeah, – this whole issue just – it felt like romance to me. That's what it was. So I didn't uh, – you know, I know that there's a lot of talk nowadays about, you know – uh, it's it's interesting that people there's sort of a movement away from romance and and just where there's maybe less heterosexual romance and maybe there's more LGBT, LGBTQ romance. Uh, I, I joke, I think it was a couple of weeks ago where I joked when we were reviewing that, you know, I want to see a heterosexual romance. <laughs> well, we get a, we get some more in this issue. And I actually like it. We got uh, Lex, Lex Luthor hits on Victoria Court, sends her some flowers, and, and uh, she doesn't want any part of that. Uh, it's revealed that Victoria Court is bisexual because she's had more than one uh, different gender par partner. Uh, uh, Jamie and Uli, this, uh, Jamie and Uli, there might be some feelings between Jamie and Uli, Uli being the sort of like the, the alien uh, member of the horizon who talks to Jamie about having to potentially use lethal force. And then he subsequently talks to Starfire and then he confronts Victoria Court on that, asking how to kill someone like himself. Uh, and um, we also got Iziamora, the, the, the green beetle, I guess, uh, and Paco. Uh, there's a romance that is formed there, which is, uh, which is interesting. So we're getting, we've got some character work here. So it wasn't, it, it, while it was a lot of talking heads, I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. It wasn't pointless. It, it, it established some good character moments. It established some romance. We also got the revelation of the secret identity of the blood scarab. His name is Javier Basualdo. And it looks like he is, he's somewhat, he might be, God forbid, a victim himself. He might be forced to be the blood scarab. It looks like uh, if he doesn't do what he's told, he himself will be killed by this higher power. We don't know who it is. So uh, this that sort of 
that you know we those of us who are reading now that we know that victoria court might is exploring the idea of how to kill a beetle how to kill the blood scarab uh well blood scarab himself might be a victim and so you know the this this trepidation that uh jamie Ray, reyes has about using lethal force it might it might be ultimately what saves blood scarab's life down the road so i, th- I thought it was a really good issue i think uh, josh trujillo has done a good job here and i I quite I quite liked it, and I actually really liked the cover. I liked cover A on this. I thought it really popped off the page, and I thought it looked really good with a blue beetle looking to, looking into Oli's eyes with the sunset behind him on the cover. It was a nice, big, bright cover. I, I really liked it, and I was one of the. I thought it was one of the better comics this week. Actually, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah, definitely, plenty of uh, romance in the air. Um. <laughs> If you will. Uh, next up, we have Superman 78, The Metal Curtain. So, uh, again, we talked about the, the first issue when it came out. This is Robert Venditti continuing his stories that are set in the, I, I guess, for lack of a better way to label it, the Christopher Reeve universe, the Richard Donner universe of Superman, uh, you know, the, the universe of the 1978 Superman movie. And uh, I think it was 82 when. Um, when the second movie came out, um, Superman two. So, uh, Gavin Guidry does the, uh, line work, Jordi Belair on colors. I don't know who, who did the letters because for some reason there's no credits page. <laughs> so not sure. But what I found I- interesting here is, is that in a lot of ways, this would be, okay. What is the, um, what is the third Superman movie look like? Um, you know, if, if it were to be, you know, put, put out in the second one, Lois Lane discovers what Superman's secret identity is, right? Like he reveals it to her as they go to the, um, Fortress of Solitude and what have you. Um, and I had, I had sort of forgotten because in this issue, it appears Superman once again is about to reveal his secret identity to Lois. And I was like, wait, doesn't she already know it? Oh no, there was the yeah. magical kiss. If you recall at the end, not that we necessarily knew that uh, Superman had, you know, magical kissing powers, um, but apparently that's uh, that's a thing. But right as he's about to to possibly reveal, he's taken Lois once again to the Fortress of Solitude as Superman to introduce him to his parents, and she's talking to them, you know, learning about Krypton and what have you, um, both the city and the planet. And then um, Superman goes and changes to Clark Kent. He's about to reveal, and then he hears this emergency that's going on. And it turns out it's Metallo. Um, and he flies off and gets his butt kicked by Metallo because we know Metallo's got uh, kryptonite. He's powered by kryptonite. So <clears throat> that's sort of w- uh, where we're at in this uh, issue. So uh, again, not a ton of action. I mean, there's the fight between Superman and Metallo, but it's actually a very truncated fight. He he does get his, his butt kicked pretty soundly. Um, but again, because uh, of the kryptonite, so we'll see how that all plays out. Um, the Gavin Gudry art is fine. I don't enjoy it as much as the Wilfredo Torres art that we had on the previous Superman 78 series, uh, but it's not bad. The storytelling is strong. Um, it just felt, it feels like the detail isn't quite as, um, there isn't quite as much of, it, especially in the backgrounds, but overall this continues to feel very much like a continuation of that, those Richard Donner stories. You know, if, uh, had there been a, a Superman three that was by Richard Donner, had there been a Superman four, um, this, seems to be what it would feel like. So, um, so what do you think, Rocky? Uh, I was, uh, I, I was 
disappointed in this, but you know what? I was disappointed in it, I guess, for all the right reasons, because it, uh, frankly, it's precisely because it is so much like the Superman one, Superman two, it's repeating the very same tropes we saw in those movies while, and I realized maybe I'm being a little bit, maybe I'm being harsh saying this, but he really, Lois still doesn't know a secret identity. Okay. I guess that's right. Depending on where this fits in the continuity of that, of that Christopher Reeve universe, I get it, but it just really seemed like sort of playing on the same sort of character mode, the, the character characters, mannerisms and, and the same, it just feels like a little bit tiresome. And maybe it's because I've seen the super, I love super, I love the Superman movies. Who doesn't love Superman one and Superman two? And I've watched them a thousand times. And this just seems, this really seems like, I almost feel like I've watched this adventure before and I never have. This doesn't, this doesn't feel particularly creative to me. It doesn't feel like it's thinking outside the box. It doesn't feel like it's moving the characters forward. In fact, I would have much preferred rather than have the Metallo scenes. I wanted to know what I was more interested in the conversation between Lois and Jarrell and Laura when she was interviewing them. What would that interview be like? I was more interested to see how that interview would go. The the action scenes between Superman and Metallo were just as just as bad as the special effects were back in the 70s but we loved them back then in the 70s you know because they were yeah. it was the first time but it, i feel that the that the that the fight scene between Metallo and superman was just as bad as the special effects were and and this is you've got you're in a comic book now there's no excuse for having I thought this fight scene should have been much, you know, elevate Christopher Reeve a little bit more. Don't dumb down the fight scene. I felt that. I maybe I'm being harsh. Maybe I'm being harsh. Uh, but for for I guess maybe with normies that don't normally read a lot of comics, I really wanted to elevate Christopher Reeve here to to have him be a little bit more active because the Christopher Reeve is always the most probably the most. Let's face it, <laughs> he was you know he was strong, but I mean by today yeah. I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of an elevation of the power set and just just a little bit more of what's at stake. Even getting more back, you know, a little bit more character work with Metallo. It seemed a little bit one-dimensional there. But then, admittedly, the Superman movies themselves were maybe a little bit one-dimensional by, by today's standards. And maybe I'm being harsh because this is a big nostalgia factor. Again, nostalgia-wise, it's fine. And maybe I'm being harsh. I'm, I'm enjoying this. I am enjoying it. Uh, but I just feel like it's, ah, it could be a little bit more. You Why don't you take advantage and maybe evolve and elevate this world more than, than you have? And so I can't help but be a little bit disappointed. So, Yeah, I mean, I get, I get what you're saying because, like I said, I mentioned that too about the, the reveal. But if you're following along that continuity, technically she learned his secret identity and then didn't know yeah. it. That's so, true. Yeah, I agree. Did he want to, to go down that path of revealing it again? Um, you know, this might be the way it goes down, but yeah, it does feel like, well, no, this is ground that we've tread on before. So uh, anyway, let's move on. Next up, we have Poison Ivy issue number 17 from writer G. Willow Wilson, guest artist in colors, Luana Vecchio, letters by Hassan Atzwan Elhau. Uh, I, this was narrated by Poison Ivy. I, I like where we are in terms of the Lamia spores, her, her feeling uh, responsible for what's going on with them, her trying to find a cure, how daunting it feels to have that cure. I love the characterization of Killer Croc that G. Wilson, Wilson gives us and the the relationship, the friendship uh, between Killer Croc and Poison Ivy, I think is very, very interesting. So I'm enjoying that aspect of it. The art is fine. It's, you know, quite a bit of a departure style-wise from the art that we had uh previously with um, Marcio Takara, who's the regular series artist. 
and I, I don't love that. This this art feels it's much more of an animated style. And being that we're dealing with like these these literal undead like Lamia spore zombies, for lack of a better term, having this art that that looks a little I, I don't want to say kitty, um, but it, it, yeah, it's definitely much more juvenile. Uh, I guess you'd say it's not you know superhero house style sort of. Uh, it feels weird. It just it just feels off a little bit. Um, it would be more suited for like um, the young Diana stories or, or something that's aimed at younger readers. Yeah. Uh, but overall, the story itself, I, I'm digging. I love the fact that, um, you know, like I said, Poison Ivy's taken upon herself to try to find an antidote. Um, it turns out that Killer Croc may be immune as well. There's some complications of trying to take his blood. He's actually scared of needles. The explanation for that makes perfect sense. It's great characterization. Um, and then the fact that she's like, yeah, I need enough for all of Gotham and Killer Croc's like, well, why do you need all of Gotham? Well, because they're all coming here, you know, it's like, they're all coming back to the mothership, the mothership being Poison Ivy, since she's the one that created, um, this, this strain of Lamia spores that's mutated out in the wild. So great concepts, great execution. Um, just, I don't know if the art, just the tone of the artwork is, is right for the story that's being told, but a minor nitpick overall, it's a really strong issue. Uh, what do you think, Rock? Uh, I generally share your sentiment. I, I actually like the art a little bit more than uh, it sounds like you did. Uh, I actually, it's odd. I, I generally don't like uh, uh, too much of a childlike animated art, but I, I find this was, uh, I didn't find this was too much of a huge deviation from the, the art that we've been accustomed to up until now. I, I didn't mind it. Um, what I found the most humorous here is it has to be said, goddamn Janet from HR. I mean, she's the luckiest. She's got to be the luckiest character in comic books for men or for a man or a woman. I mean, who hasn't dreamt? I mean, this is probably how many people can brag that they slept with both Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy and or or maybe did she just kiss them both or was it more intimate? I don't really know. You can, I guess that's up for us readers. I, I know I know where my imagination's going because I'm a Pyrian <laughs> fanboy. So we'll just leave it at that. You can guess what I'm thinking. But I'm thinking per Janet, I mean, imagine having the problem. You know, it's funny, you know, Poison Ivy doesn't want Janet. You know, just keep it between us, you know. And then Harley Quinn's telling her, just keep it between us. And meanwhile, she's basically slept with both of them. And I just, I love how Jay Willow Wilson has played that. And because... Maybe Janet from HR doesn't really realize that, uh, I mean, if anybody could probably forgive their their partner from being sexual with somebody else, it's probably Ivy and Harley, the way they, they're always sort of seem to be portrayed, at least in this particular series, as being both sexually promiscuous and rather forgiving on that. And we've even had like Lamia spore orgies, <laughs> Lamia induced orgies. I mean, as hard as uh, Jay Willow Wilson tries, I got to admit, part of me almost wishes I, if I was going to get high on a mushroom, I'd like a Lamia spore just for the hell of it to see what would happen. Maybe spice up the sex life with the wife. I don't know. But uh, I, I thought that was kind of... I, I'm surprised how all that works. And I thought it was funny and humorous. I can't believe Janet at HR, she started off as a joke. She, but she's main, she's actually managed to remain a character in this story. And yet she's sort of a humorous addition to it. And yet she's not, she hasn't become a complete joke like I fear she would. I actually kind of enjoy her in the background here. And I actually really care. I'm curious to see where this is going. 
And Jay Willie Wilson uh, has clearly made Poison Ivy start off. Uh, at first, I really wanted Poison Ivy to, to remain a villain. Part of me still wants her to be a villain. But the journey that Jay Willie Wilson has put Ivy on, Pamela Isley on, from being this hardcore psychopathic villain to maybe exploring more and being uh, being uh, an anti-hero but with a darker edge, I kind of like it. Like it. Uh, at least like I'm getting accustomed to it. And even even the manner in which, and you see the you see the portrayal of Poison Ivy on the cover. There's more black in the coloring of Poison Ivy. It's a darker version of Ivy, but there's there's less. There's a little less green. There's a little bit more black in in in, in the way that Poison Ivy is being rendered. Uh, and now that might just be her iteration because she's being infected by the Lamia spores more and more, and her ribs are hurting. But I like the color work here that's consistent with the story. Uh, and consistent of what uh, biologically and physiologically uh, Poison Ivy is going through. And I think it works really well. So this is another one of the, this is also one of the better issues this week, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm glad you called out. I, I, I laughed out loud when I'd read it, um, when Jenna from HR is agonizing over the fact that, yeah, she's been intimate with both of them what, to whatever degree, as you said, and she feels guilt, you know, that she's keeping it from uh, both. She's the only one that knows the truth. Uh, and she's got her head in her hands at one point. And she's like, I'm committing so many HR violations. <laughs> yeah. it's, just a great, it's just a great, like literal laugh out loud moment in the book. So yeah. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Shazam number six is up next. Uh, Mark Wade and Dan Mora are credited as storytellers. Obviously, Dan hand, handling more of the writing, Mora handling uh, plot and pencils. Alejandro Sanchez on the colors. Uh, Troy Petrie on letters. Uh, I, this was a fantastic issue, uh, but let's get your thoughts first, Rocky, and then I'll uh, I'll talk about what I liked about it. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that uh, Billy has been struggling with from the beginning, the the central issue in this op in this opening six issue arc, and this, the arc ends in this issue, is the 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 gods that make up the power of Shazam. Uh, have been basically arguing. They've, 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 they've been upset with how Billy is handling their powers and using them. And so they've taken turns, sort of taken over Shazam, taken when, when Billy turns into the captain, as we call him. Uh, they, they've controlled the captain's actions. And what's revealed this issue is, is really interesting because uh, one of the things that I never really appreciated, but what Mark Wade reminds us readers, and I needed reminding, is that Solomon is, a, is the only one who is not a god. And you know what? I guess I never really thought about it before. I always thought of Solomon as a god, but I guess he's not. And so the wisdom of Solomon is really the wisdom of a, of a human being. And and so it's Solomon that's sort of been pushed away to the to the to the to the sidelines as the gods, as Zeus and Hercules and the Mercury, etc., as they've sort of been arguing over over who controls Billy. Uh, what what is revealed here? And I thought in the way Mark did it was just so so interesting. Was he basically? Uh, he says that uh, it's it, the way that you try to the way that Billy needs to get his control over his powers and control over the gods back is by increasing the amount of wisdom and that the wisdom is what he needs and that Solomon himself needs needed to be approached. And that that's what Billy does in this issue. While uh, while Freddie himself, uh, Freddie at the end of last issue, uh, his, his buddy Freddie uh, who was just, it's now revealed, just acting. He's basically saying, look, he's saying to Zeus and Mercury and, the, and Hercules and a lot saying, look, if Billy doesn't want your powers because he's scolding you because he doesn't want to abuse them, give them to me. And uh, that's all just a ruse to buy time. 
for the rest of the Shazam family to come in with their own powers, <laughs> with their own uh, with their own abilities, and they call themselves the uh, the new squadron of justice. Eugene is the invincible, uh, and uh, Darla is Bullet Girl, and Pedro is Mister Adam, and and uh, the uh, Spy Smasher is the dino is, is is the dinosaur. I I thought it was very well done. This I felt that this was this was a combination of how I remember Mark Wade's old Young Justice series was. It was he's combining some Young Justice fun with uh, Shazam sensibilities, with the innocence of, uh, with Billy Batson, with the arrogance of the gods, and with the wisdom of Solomon, all combined and wrapped into one, all in one issue, and a, and a wonderful resolution to the six issues to this six issue story arc. I think this is going to make a hell of a trade. This was a really great read. It's the uh, capping off of just, you know, this This is, uh, and, and it actually, what I like about it is Mark Wade, I think is, and this is Mark Wade maybe, I think he's making a commentary outside the comic, but I like the fact when, when Billy scolds the gods, he says something that I wish Wonder Woman would say to her gods. He says the obvious thing, you know, maybe stop acting like children. Solomon is basically saying the same thing. Enough already. I mean, you, you're, you have all the gods, but you really don't need the wisdom. I mean, because Zeus and the lot, Mercury, they got to be embarrassed that they got to be embarrassed that they actually need the wisdom of Solomon to start acting like adults. I mean, who's the adult in the room? And, and it's, I mean, we joke about it all the time. It, what they're, the, the frailties and the, and the flaws of the god are often is what leads to a lot of Wonder Woman stories where she's battling uh, some mythological nonsense because of some stupidity of the gods. And I like that it takes that even, even a young boy like Billy, uh, w- without the wisdom of Solomon, can, out, can you know, outwise somebody like Zeus and, and, and it likes, it makes Zeus think and the, the gods basically, you know, they, they, they ultimately, you know, I guess they comply and they decide that they're going to behave and basically they're defeated with, with, with words. And that's, that's what, I, that's what I, what I like about it. When Shazam, when Billy finally transforms into Shazam, he takes, he takes his agency back because he's got the greater wisdom of Solomon to, to more stand up for himself, control the powers of the, the other powers of the gods uh, that make up his namesake. And, uh, and, and it works, it works really well. And I thought this was just a, a great ending, a great ending to the story arc, while also a pretty cool tease for what we're going to get in the next story arc. So what do you think? Yeah, I mean, what a great six issues, right? Like, this is what I love about it, right? Like, we, we talked about a, a little bit, I, I nitpicked on saying we're not getting the resolution of any of these stories. Uh, and now I've come around to sort of actually liking that, right? It's more like old school comics. It's more like none of this stuff feels like you're writing for a trade. Like, if you look at the way Billy has bounced around and the stories bounced around from one idea to another in the first six issues, we do get a resolution of, of the, the one plot thread that, that does feel like it's touched on in every issue. And that's this, for lack of a better term, petulance of the gods that give uh, the gods plus Solomon, I guess you'd say that give Billy his, his powers. So I love that there's a constant other stuff going on. You know, you got plot a plot B plot C and we're jumping around between the, the, the different, story threads that are going on it feels you know much more old school rather than completely self-contained which you know that's fine too and a lot of people that you know trade weight you can get a more complete story you don't feel like there's any threads dangling but it's okay to have subplots that run longer than six issues five issues what have you so i'm i'm enjoying that 
you're completely right about the gods and their their childish behavior. Uh, what's funny is it's sort of t- timeless, right? You can go back and and talk about the the actual stories, the, the the Greek myths, the Roman myths, what have you. The gods acted petty and jealous back then, so it's not like they're acting out of character. But you know, when you're talking about a human, you're talking about a especially someone of of Billy's generation. Yeah, they're going to see that they they're you know they they want to be better than the generation before. They're reminding you know, hey, you're gods. You want to be treated with respect instead of you know forcing me to act like a douchebag. Why don't you go down there and do something for humans? Like you, you're not getting any respect. Go down there and actually help out. God, God knows we need it. Uh, and then you're you know you'll have some adoration. You'll have some respect. You'll have some people you know that that maybe hear or worship you a little bit if you go and help them out. So, you know, that was great. I loved the the total heel turn um, from Freddie, right? Like, I was so turned out. Like, wait, Freddie's doing what? Chalking it up to, you know, him, the, the god, see, you know, spying on Billy through his eyes. Because it doesn't really seem like Freddie would betray Billy like that and come to find out he's faking it all along. I love that plot point as well. There's humorous dialogue. You know, you mentioned it yourself, especially with, you know, what the dinosaur is saying, what Darla's saying, which is like, I didn't bullet man know about concussions, like what's going on here. So yeah, it's just a lot of fun. And uh, the Dan Moore art perfectly suited. This is just like Mark Wade's world's finest run right now. That doesn't, doesn't feel that it has to be tied into any particular continuity. You don't have to read anything else. Same thing with this. Um, it's just really enjoyable. Uh, what Mark Wade is doing. I, I, it's as much as I'd love the Jeff Johns run, maybe it's because this actually comes out on time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually enjoying this uh, even more than I did yeah. the Jeff Johns run, even, even though I do still miss, um, it, you know, the Shazam family having powers. And maybe that's part of the joy in this issue, right? Like, even though they're not sharing in the, the Shazam powers, they are, heroes somewhat by using you know some of billy's trophies and what have you so uh yeah really really great issue and, and curious to see what new um story thread is going to be introduced in the next issue that kicks off the next uh next story arc yeah. uh okay up next we have titans beast world tour waller rising number one from writer chuck brown kieran grant handles the art uh, Wes Abbott on letters. Um, you know, last thing Chuck Brown did that I think we reviewed for the DC Spotlight was the um, the Black Mana series. That f- that felt a little unfocused. I, I sort of feel the same way about this. Um, I, I like Deadeye. I like the characterization and the voice that Deadeye gets. We know, I mean, it's right there in the title. This is a lot to do with Waller. Um, you know, she's behind Doctor Fate, Doctor Hate, rather in a lot of ways, but. He's sort of broken free of her control. You know, no big surprise. Waller's doing stuff she shouldn't do, and it's backfiring on her and biting her in the ass. Once again, the entire world would be better off if Amanda Waller wasn't around. So we have this travel to another kingdom to try to stop Dr. Hate to varying degrees of success, and it really jumps around a a lot. There are a lot of characters. Um the characters look similar when you're talking about Deadeye and Black Manta. You really have to pay attention, and Batwing for that matter. You know, they're all, they all look the same. They all have the same haircut. They're all, you know, black men. Uh, the art by Karen Grant, it's uh, it's a watercolor style in terms of colors. 
So, it, you know, it's not the cleanest art style. All of this leans into sort of a confusing narrative. You really have to pay attention. I found myself having to go back. Like I, you know, get a couple pages in and be like, wait, what's happening? And I'd have to go back and reread and really pay attention. I shouldn't have to work that hard for a comic. I, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't, you know, and maybe it's, it's my man dislike of Amanda Waller or what have you, but I really don't feel like that's the case because she's not really in the issue that much. I just feel like between everybody sort of has the same voice. They sort of speak in the same way, same cadence, same kind of slang and what have you. Um, yeah, I just feel like technically the, the, there were some missteps here um, from this comic. The, the concepts are okay, but even they are not fleshed out as well. I mean, I look at this tie into Beast World as compared to the other one, the world of Metropolis one we're going to talk about next, um, that had a variety of, of uh, creators on it. That, and I just thought that one was done so much better. Um, this one for me, it just, it, it just, it needed to be better. It needed to be clearer what was going on. Um, and it doesn't, it, it's not in any way satisfying in terms of, you know, okay, it explains exactly who Dr. Hate is, how uh, he's tied to Amanda Waller, what have you. No, everything is hinted at. Everything is hinted at. And I get it. We're just at the beginning of the event of, of Beast World. So maybe you don't want to reveal too much too soon. I get that. Then then don't put this out yet, you know. Um, but anyway, yeah. So for me, this was a bit – for one of the weaker issues that came out this week, it just didn't work. So well, what were your thoughts? Maybe you enjoyed it more than I did? Uh, a little bit more. I uh, I apologize to those watching. Uh, it's the uh, the images aren't loading uh, for whatever reason on my end, so I, I can't show images. I uh, I didn't I didn't actually mind the 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 art by uh, Grant by Kieran Grant. It, it was different. Uh, it was something to get used to. I, I mean, as I understood the plot line, generally uh, following the events of Beast World number one issue number one, where when Doctor Hate took control. Uh, Dr. Hate sort of took control of the some aspects of the spores. Dr. Hate is essentially is going out on his own and he's betraying Amanda Waller. And Amanda Waller wants to get Dr. Hate under control. And so she goes to Deadshot and uh, she's related to Deadshot. Deadshot is her... Uh, Deadeye, sorry. Deadeye is her nephew. And... And so he, he, he wants to utilize... She wants to utilize him to try to get Dr. Hate back under the fold because she wants to, obviously it's Amanda Waller. She needs Dr. Dr. Hate. Uh, and they, they end up in this, in this other, I guess this other realm uh, They go after Dr. Fate. And it's, um, I, I don't mind it. I wish there were certain visual cues. I didn't take any notes when I, when I read this, cause I, I, I go off visual. I, I get used to visual cues when I, when, when we look at the preview uh, pages, but I, it's it's not bad, but it's it's just not necessary because you get what what's really odd here. What Chuck writer Chuck Brown is doing is that clearly Doctor Hate is an ally of Amanda Waller in the actual main series proper, but this is going to be shoehorned in to say that well for a brief period of time Doctor Hate was trying to betray Amanda Waller, like between issues one and two maybe is that what this was? I like I don't you know and and in the meantime. We have all the, 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 the black characters of the DC universe forming their own team, forming a network. That, that's what they form their own network. And this is, it's sort of funny. It's like the milestone universe doesn't work 
So what they're going to have is the milestone universe. They got the milestone universe and now they have the network. We have Superman here. It's Val Zod from Earth 2. We got Vixen. We got, uh, we got uh, Bat... Uh, what is it? Batmite? Bat, not Batmite. The other, the other character. Bat, Batwing. 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 Sorry. Yeah, Batwing. And uh, we've got, uh, we've got some. Uh, we got Black Manta. Chuck Brown even references the Arnaculum medal that was in his Black Manta series. Now you and I read the Black Manta series. How many other people uh, read it? They, the Arnaculum. He utilizes some of the powers and the, uh, some of the properties from his, from his, from that particular medal that was sort of played a key role in the Black Manta series. He references that. This is better written. Uh, in defense of Chuck Brown, his Black Manta series was had a really bad artist that didn't help his story. But this story, this is a marked improvement for Chuck Brown from his storytelling in, in the Black Manta series. This is substantially better. Uh, but this still had some some wonkiness in terms of the pacing and in terms of, you know, trying to follow it. But I did get the gist of it. Uh, but again, I'm not really sure where is this going to be continued. You know, now we have this network. Okay. So what of it? I'm not really sure. Uh, like again, it's not really necessary for the Beast World, Beast War series proper. But I guess now we have this new network of heroes that, okay, uh, cool, I guess. I would have, what it, it would have been nice if they had their own series or maybe. I, it just seemed like an odd way to introduce them, but but it's okay. I'm I'm curious. I'm interested to see where this is going. But I thought I thought Batwing is a member of the Outsiders now. So but now he's a member of this network. Or are they going to be in? Um, it's interesting, but it just seems a little bit. It just seems so far out of left field. And and to call this a Waller rising, and they were desperate for a title. Waller's already been rising. She's everywhere. She's just cropping up. This is actually kind of getting annoying already. Really, really annoying. And. This, I don't know why, but this whole issue just sort of left a bad taste in my mouth. Uh, and I just thought if you if you want to elevate these other characters, you kind of found a better way of doing it. But that's just my beef. Yeah, again, it just – it I, I get that it's supposed to tie into to Beast War, but it's not even clear, clear to me how well it, it really does. Um, but, yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Valzad. I love Valzad. Vixen – She's been around for a long time. Don't have as much affinity for her, but uh, but Black Manta is a character I, I really like. Uh, Batwing is someone I you know I really like. So it, you know it's not the characters themselves. I just thought yeah the execution was a little a little poor. So uh, up next we have uh, Titans Beast World um, World Tour Metropolis, which has the main story by uh, Nicole Maines and Steve Orlando as the writers, with Fico Osio as the artist. Uh, and then there's a, a couple of backup stories. Um, and it, basically, it's sort of a glimpse into uh, different Superman-adjacent characters or Superman-related characters and what they have going on, you know, during the events of uh, of uh, Titans uh, Beast World. So there's a second story, Turtle Boy, written by Dan Jurgens, Pencils and Inks by Anthony Marquez and Joe Prado, with Wade Gar uh, Von Grabager, Colors by Pete Pantazis. Letters by Dave Sharp. And then um, I think there's a third story as well. Let me get there real fast. Um, yeah, then we, well, there's a real brief vignette with, with Lois um, that I'm not 
sure who it's by, but then we have Don't Stop, A Tale from Beast World, written by Zipporah Smith and Joshua Williamson, art by Edwin Galman, letters by Dave Sharp, um, that uh, that finishes us, finishes us off, so to speak. So yeah, quite a few stories in this one. Um, I thought the main story was done really, really well uh, by Mains and uh, Steve Orlando. Um, the art by Michelle Gandini is absolutely gorgeous. I'll also shout out the main cover by Mikkel Yanin, uh, which is really great. Uh, but it seems like they're, um, the main story that has Dreamer in it, uh, Nicole Maines being the actress that plays her. Um, so it makes sense that, that she's involved. She's written uh, Dreamer stories previously. <clears throat> it seems like they're leveling her up in terms of power levels. Her, her powers have undergone a bit of a change. That's explained here um, very well. And it's not explained in such a way that you feel like um, – that it's being spoon fed to you, right? Like it makes sense when, uh, that when dreamer sort of explaining what's happening to her. Um, so I appreciated that as well. Um, so yeah, I thought the main story was, was done really, really well. Love the interaction between dreamer and John Kent. And yeah, just for the art alone, that main story I thought was fantastic. Color works done really well also. Uh, and it ties in with beast world very well. It's action packed, but it's also providing context. To what's going on with Beast World? We see the effects of Beast World um, with uh, with what's happening to Livewire in the story. So it's a little better in terms of being additive and feeling connected to Beast World more so than the Amanda Waller story was. But again, the Amanda Waller story, uh, as I said, um, it 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 they they're hinting at things that they may not want to have revealed yet. So maybe the Amanda Waller story uh will feel more connected to beast world when we get a little further into the the beast world uh story so what do you think of the main story here rock i i really like the the, the main story i thought it, i thought it was decent i it was the first time i i've not really been a fan of the dreamer uh character to be honest yeah i just feel it was uh it should have stayed in the cw network this is the first time she was in a story that i thought oh geez maybe she's not completely useless and i say that with uh no apology i, I really didn't like the character but finally she's i actually like that that they the way they changed dreamer's power set was that i like the fact that she, it's getting a little bit infected a little bit where she's it's interfering with her daily activities where she'll she'll uh, she'll have a vision of something that happens in the future. At one point, she's at a restaurant and the waitress spills something, but she actually saw something that happened in the future and she reacted to it before it actually happened. And it's, you know, I can see that really screwing up your life. If you see things that happen that haven't happened yet, I can see, uh, and then they suddenly happen. And and then she said that she she has the problem of, she might see something that takes place in the future 10 five minutes or 10 seconds or 10 minutes in the future and not know what, what it is. And then uh, now, and then what happens is, I mean, if I'm being critical of the story, while she saw some major event happen, some disaster happen in Metropolis, it wasn't, she, she seems to know at the end after, you know, live wire Metropolis is attacked. I wasn't clear from whom, I guess it's live wire who, because the beast force changes into some sort of live wire beast. And, and then causes all this havoc, and then for some reason she, she Dreamer mentions that she that the, that the that the chaos is over for now, or what she saw it's over now, and she just if she's not confident what if she's seeing something that's happening in the future or when it's going to happen. I'm not sure how she was confident to say that the that that it was over or that their particular 
you know, what they have to be concerned about was over. But uh, in any event, I like the fact that it showed her to be very, very flawed. And and I got to say, Mains as a writer is, it is good here. I, I like what she does. She does something that, um, that masterfully, I think, I won't say masterfully, but in a very good way, she, even though we know that, uh, we, we know she is, uh, She's for diversity and she's an LGBTQ writer, but I think she's one of the better ones because she really just focuses on character. I'm interested in, in, in who Dreamer is. I'm interested in the story uh, and the fact that Dreamer just happens to be LGBTQ is an afterthought. And, but yet it's there if you, if you want to pursue that character. I, I think she does a good job getting us to know the character and, you know, frankly, I don't see that happening with a lot of uh, LGBTQ writers. She does it better than most, in my opinion. And and Dreamer, this is a character. I always liked, I loved, I had a crush on Dream Girl at the Legion of Superheroes. And I love the fact that she did make Dreamer sort of related somewhat in the far future in, a, in an offhanded way to Dream Girl, Dream Girl of the 20, 31st century. So I, saw, I sort of like that. And so, you know, I've she's slowly convincing me on the side that yeah we we need a dreamer in the, in the dc universe so yeah I, I didn't mind the main story i wasn't a fan of the the middle story with dan jurgens i thought it was too 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 silly it shouldn't have been there i mean i'm not I, I just don't it's too silly i don't i don't like silliness to that extent in the dc universe and the lois lane story uh was well, it was okay it was okay but overall i don't i don't really find these beast world uh Beast World Tours, I don't find them to be really necessary reads at all. So if you just want to read a good event, focus on Beast World, you absolutely do not read, need to read these crossovers, for sure. Definitely not. Yeah, I think the second story, I agree with you. It's a little, it's mostly the art style that is just, yeah, it's a kid, it's a kiddie story, you know, and it's fine that those exist, but I don't know that, Be you know, Beast World is kind of an all ages event. It's pretty uh, mature. So I don't yeah. know how well that fits in. I, I did appreciate the last story, the Lois Lane story, mostly because it um, really shows the strength of the relationship between uh, Superman and Lois Lane, which, you know, I'm always a big fan of. Plus, I thought the art in that one was absolutely gorgeous. And then uh, at the at the end, uh, we see at, at one point the, all the spores are um, attacking the, the Fortress of Solitude where Lois is. Uh, and Clark goes there to try to, to save her because that's what he does. You know, his wife's in trouble. His love of his life's in trouble. Of course, he goes there. And they're telling him, stay away. The last thing that we that we need is a Superman that's affected with Garos for it. And uh, you see in a, that as he's about to be infected, there's this giant, like, electrical charge. And it kind of zaps all the spores that were trying to uh, infect him. And Kelix mentions how... Uh, he doesn't know how they were able to uh, set that up initially. It's advanced technology, what have you. But it's telling because on Superman's forehead at the time that the like electrical charge or what have you goes off, you see that there is a uh, a symbol on his forehead, and it's the symbol that's associated with uh, with Brainiac. So it's you know it's clear what's going on here. Uh, it's Brainiac that is. Um, Brainiac technology or what have you that sort of saves Superman. And, and at the end, Brainiac shows up, you know, he talks about the spores and how they're drawn to, to earth because of Superman's powers, just like he himself is and to be continued next year's action comics. So 
we've already talked about it a lot. Uh, DC's really leaning into some sort of Brainiac-led uh, Superman event, which will be coming, I, I guess, at some point next year. So uh, looking forward to that. Uh, up next, we have Fire and Ice. Welcome to Smallville Part 4. Joanne Starr on script, Natasha Bustos on art, Tamara Bonvalon on colors, and Ariana Mare on letters. What are your thoughts on this one? Um, uh, yeah, I love Lobo. I, you know, lucky Lobo. I mean, Janet from HR, if she's the, uh, if she's the luckiest person in the DC universe for being with, uh, Poison Ivy and, uh, Harley, Lobo is probably the second luckiest because he gets to be with fire. <laughs> Lobo shows up in this issue and, uh, yeah, uh, th this is, a little bit of a, uh, you know, last issue, Jimmy Olsen visited Smallville to check up on them and he ended up turning into Turtle Boy. And one of the supervillains that Fire and Ice are taking care of ends up becoming this, you know, uh, human eating monster and caused a bunch of chaos. And that didn't uh, that didn't go over uh, understandably. That didn't go over particularly well by any stretch. And um, right. And this issue is Fire uh, with her. Or, uh, pardon me, with Ice talking to her friend, her new her new best friend named Rocky, uh, talking about you know reevaluating. Maybe she needs some space and some distance from from Fire, uh, because uh, Fire just always seems to get her in trouble. And, but she's struggling with it because she, Fire gets brings her out of her shell and what have you. And uh, in the meantime, you know uh, Lobo uh, Lobo makes makes his way down because Lobo wants to. Uh, <laughs> I actually think Lobo just wants to get together with fire. Can you, if you can, you know, surprise, surprise, Lobo just wants a piece. And, and, you know, the, the, there's, there's actually a decent amount of humor here. This is a series that has grown on me. As I said, coming out of human target, I did not want to fire an ice. I wanted to fire an ice in the human target, uh, uh, tradition uh as it was under uh tom king quite frankly but perhaps i'm in the minority on that but this uh this is definitely a series that has grown on me and i gotta give uh credit to uh i think uh, was it janice starer star did i say that right joanne joanne star jo joanne star yeah because this is this is actually entertaining at one point here martha kent decides to have there's actually a drag show in Smallville and insists on taking fire and ice to a drag show to get them to reconcile and make up and realize that, you know, disagreements happen. And, and, and then what happens is that Rocky and fire end up getting into a fight and arguing because they're both kind of jealous of each other because one's closer to ice than the other one. And then fire goes outside and gets angry at one of the protesters against her. And ice just gets very, very upset. And uh, ultimately, you know, Lobo, Lobo, and uh, Fire leave, and you know, it looks like they they're gonna do nasty. And uh, I think I think the bartender who wants is hoping to get lucky with Fire. He's a little upset to hear that she took off with Lobo, and that's how this that's that's how the, the, the comic book ends. So there's actually some entertaining drama here. I didn't think that I would be entertained to the extent that I was on this series. I got to give uh, you know, Joanne Starr some credit in that regard. Natasha Bustos, the art by Natasha Bustos. Uh, it's growing on me. Tamar Bonvillain's colors are, are really good. Uh, so this is, this is entertaining. I, I'm actually getting every issue here because I'm being entertained. I'm entertained, and that's the bottom line. Uh, against my better judgment, I find myself liking this series. So that I got to give a compliment to the writer for that. 
What about yourself? Yeah, yeah I mean, I feel the same way. At the end of the day, this this comic has two things, right? It has humor. I mean, Lobo showing up. Lobo and Fire clearly have a past relationship. I'm not I'm not familiar with it, but they clearly have gotten Neither together in the past. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. uh, that you know they seem familiar with with each other. I think they both like to get down and dirty uh, to some, to some extent. It seems like they're definitely going to do that. So yeah, the, the relationships, whether it's you know established characters like Fire and Ice and Lobo, or less established like the Z-list villains that are here that are babysat by Crypto at one point, uh, the new relationships that have been established. You know, you've got this in some way this weird three-way between Rocky Roads and Fire and Ice, and then you've got the the what seemed to be a burgeoning relationship between Fire and and Rocky Roads' brother. Uh, uh, Charles Rhodes, who owns the bar, the bartender that Rocky mentioned. So you've got that, you got humor, you got relationships, you put it all together. And uh, yeah, I think Joanne Starr, who's kind of favorite era of comics, favorite um, sort of run of comics is the, the Bwahaha era of the Justice League. She's doing a, a, a credible job of paying homage to that while still bringing something fresh to the table. The Bustos art is, is, uh, is p- pitch perfect for this type of story they're trying to to tell you mentioned the bond villain colors they're fantastic as well so yeah all in all like you said just a really solidly entertaining series uh all right up next we have batman 140 this is mind bomb part two written by chip sadarsky art by jorge jimenez colors by tamayu more letters by clayton cows i did get a chance to speak to chip uh, briefly at la comic-con this weekend he had a giant line pretty much all the time but i did say, say hi uh mentioned having him on the show we've been trying to make it happen for some time so maybe in the new year uh, that'll be coming. Uh, but yeah, this is uh, Batman and more of the fallout um, from the entirety of Zdarsky's run with what was going on in the alternate universe where there was no Batman, what was going on in the um, the failsafe story uh, with and Batman Zer and R. Um, and, and this is kind of the, um, the consequences of that, the consequences of, of Batman being just over, overwhelmed with all this stuff that Arsky's been thrown at him since he's been on the series. So uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the second issue of Mind Bomb? Uh, it's, it actually was, it's kind of what I predicted it would be. And I, I guess that's not bad. I just was, I was surprised. Nothing's really surprised. I was surprised that I, I, I guessed it because I, it's, it's sort of by the numbers. I, I was surprised at just how, uh, how well there's there's not really much to say i mean all, all the, the 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 batman or the the zers the zerna batmans from the rest of the multiverse simply want to take they want to take control of batman's mind of earth designate zero and then basically you know after they do that i guess kill all the bad guys and then make their way and infect the minds of all the batmans and, and the rest of the multiverse and just sort of like start their little takeover of all the Batmans. I think that's their master plan. And in the meantime, um, in the meantime, uh, Batman is left to fight them on his own. And while he's fighting the Joker, it's still not clear. It's very unclear. How does the Joker even know about the Batman map? How does the Joker even know about Batman's struggles with in of of with Zerana and how does the Joker even know about the Zerana the other Zeranas in the multiverse does he even know there's really no further hints in that regard this is one just long drawn out fight Batman ultimately creates a memory palace in his mind and fights all the uh, all the Zers and ultimately defeats all the Zers 
by having because it's Batman's mind. I guess the the logic being used here, if I was to oversimplify this issue to get to the point faster, is that it's sort of like being in your own dream. This is like Batman's mind, so Batman can create the rules in his own mind. So even though all the Zeranaz are there, Bat it's Batman's mind. Batman makes the rules, and when Batman finally figures that out and develops his own con his own inner confidence if you will he basically defeats uh the the uh, presence of all the uh the Zura, uh, the other zuranas within his memory palace uh the more interesting aspects of it were at the end where batman is sort of pulled out and fail sh fail safe finally shows up that was the most interesting to me i thought you know the whole issue of him fighting the, the zers was sort of like superfluous it was inevitable he was likely going to win and but Failsafe shows up and says to Batman, "We were we were only supposed to act act the we were only supposed to activate the Terminus Project once our body was weak, unable to go on. But I needed somewhere to go, didn't I? Somewhere for the new Batman to call home. And and it's interesting because one of the things we know is that Zurinah is the one that ultimately programmed Failsafe, but it would appear." It was unclear what what the default programming was after Failsafe defeats Batman or kills Batman. Then then what was what was Failsafe supposed to do? And it it appears as if maybe Failsafe that alternate programming, Zer never got around to to programming Failsafe as to what to do after he kills Batman. And so what has and so Failsafe has had to figure it out on his own based on the programming he has. And so it's. There's not enough clues given in this in this final two two pages in terms of what exactly is Failsafe doing. Uh, Failsafe clearly doesn't want to kill Batman. Failsafe clearly has Failsafe has clearly discovered that he did not in fact kill Batman. And in fact, we know that Batman had injected Failsafe with empathy nanobots, and it's the empathy that was injected into Failsafe which caused him not to kill Batman, but just send him into the other multi other universe to begin with. And so this new Failsafe doesn't we know doesn't want to kill batman and has some empathy in him so what is the what is or what does failsafe want to do that's an interesting question and that's what i'm really curious to see where sardaski goes following this issue because failsafe was my favorite arc of his so far i hated gotham war uh, i'm far more interested in failsafe I'm, I'm not even so much interested in zernaz but i am interested to see where sardaski is going to go with failsafe but uh, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, I didn't take it that way at all with Failsafe. Uh, he mentions the Terminus Project. We were only supposed to activate the Terminus Project once our body was weak. Interesting that he uses our. He's considering himself to be Bruce, basically. Yeah. You know, program with Bruce's knowledge and what have you. So apparently they had this robot. This is a robot that's a robotic body that's even more advanced than the one he was using before I, I took that as. And so at some point, uh, if Bruce's body got too weak to continue, Zerna's idea was they're gonna, he was going to transfer his consciousness into a robotic body and allow Bruce Wayne to continue being Batman forever. Maybe the failsafe body had a, a time limit, you know, wasn't supposed to be uh, able to sustain. Uh, that's kind of how I took it, sustain indefinitely. But this body that he's in now is, is supposed to. Uh, and so he's like, yeah, I needed somewhere to go. So I went into this body that was supposed to be, you know, the, the, the body, the entity that Batman goes in once his, you know, body 
can't continue to be Batman. So what does that mean? Is Does it mean that Failsafe is going to now partner up with Batman? Is it going to be like having two Batman? But he does have the empathy nanobots that you mentioned, but still probably based on the fact that his you know, original programming is from Zur and Ah, he's got to probably be a, a little more brutal or what have you. So is he going to be an antagonist? Is it going to be a situation where Batman tries to train him? Is he going to end up with kind of a sword of the bat, you know, Azrael type thing where he's too violent? Uh, interesting to think about. Interesting to think about. The rest of the story, like you mentioned, uh, this is the interesting part here at the end. The rest of it goes kind of how you would expect it. Um, when Zurina is in charge of Batman, he's, you know, beating the crap out of the Joker, which I don't necessarily mind, but he's definitely <laughs> crossing the line in, in terms of, you know, brutality and, you know, unnecessarily violence. Uh, but of course, Batman's, you know, biggest strength is his strength of will and his intellect. And he figures out a way out of his, out of the kind of the mind trap that he's in, which you completely expect. Like you mentioned, that's just like when you're aware that you're dreaming and you're able to control your dream. Uh, to some extent. So where this goes from here, uh, we'll have to see the backup story also written by Zadarsky with art by Mike Hawthorne, colors by Yvonne Placencia and Clayton Cowles continues the story of what Vandal Savage is doing in Gotham city while uh, he's consolidating his power. We know he's trapped in Gotham city. Now uh, he's got his immortality and what have you back his level of power back. But now that power is tied to his uh, geographic location. He's got to stay in Gotham City. The further he gets away from Gotham, the weaker he becomes. Um, so he's got to basically take over Gotham and then maybe he can see how he can spread his tentacles out from there. Uh, but there's hints of him possibly be becoming uh, the police commissioner. So I could definitely see how that would put him at odds with uh, with Batman. So we'll see how that goes uh, going forward. I, I, I got to admit, I don't really see Vandal Savage as a I'll picture him as a Batman villain, certainly not a traditional Batman villain, not part of the rogues gallery or what have you, but he's not a bad choice for the Bat villain. But uh, I got to say, I, I completely think that it was a failure having uh, the whole Joker war and having the Wayne fortune be taken away from Bruce and, you know, in the hands of Alfred and then Lucius Fox and what have you. And Batman supposedly wasn't going to have the same level of resources and he was in Brownstone downtown, but it didn't really seem like it mattered, right? He still had all the little mini bat caves instead of the big bat cave, or whatever. He, he was never like, "Oh my god, I'm broke. I got to go borrow money from Dick Grayson or whatever to to make some batarangs." So, while it was interesting in, as a concept, this type of stories that DC wants to tell, it just it didn't matter. There were no consequences for him losing his fortune. So I say that to say this: Can we just go back? Can we get him back in the mansion? Can we get Vandal Savage out of there? There's something to be said for status quo. Sometimes it's it's overly complicating the story. Like if somebody new jumps on, like wait, Batman doesn't live at Wayne Manor. Wait, Vandal Savage owns the the Bat Mansion and knows that the Bat Cave is there. Like it's it's needlessly complicating it for anybody who hasn't been reading. So just put it back to status quo and stop messing with it because it didn't work and it, it didn't matter. And you could argue, well, it didn't matter because it didn't work but maybe it didn't work because it was never going to matter because you can't i mean batman's true superpower like they say in the in was it batman versus Superman? no the justice league movie right uh his superpower is that he's super rich yeah <laughs> uh, and you can't take that away because it, he doesn't work as batman if he doesn't have all the gadgets uh and you know we saw that so 
yeah, interesting concept, but unless you're going to go put him back in the Dark Ages, which uh, Grant Morrison did, that's the only way he's really not going to have access to resources. He's going to have access to resources. He's Batman. Batmobiles are going to get blown up and crashed and all that sort of stuff, and he still has money to fix all that. Um, we never saw it be otherwise. So, uh, Any thoughts on the backup from you? Well, yeah. Uh, I mean, what's Vandal Savage just doing wandering back? And isn't he a wanted fugitive? I mean, uh, how can he just wander back into Gotham? Like, they didn't they have any evidence? Uh, like, I, I guess, I guess that, like, what? Like, I, I just don't understand. If, if Vandal Savage hadn't supposedly disappeared at the end of Gotham War and Batman had apprehended him, what would Batman have done with him? Wouldn't you have put him in jail or he, had him arrested? What did, he, what did he do? He didn't. He didn't actually do anything. He didn't do anything. They so, can't well, no proof that he directed the meteor or that well, he. I, I guess that's well. I guess yeah. I guess you're right. Yeah. I guess you're right. So yeah. I guess they 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 failed to stop Vandal Savage at all. No no evidence against them at all. Which actually, upon reflection, makes me hate Gotham more even more. So here's a guy <laughs> that I mean, he wanted to leave Gotham, but he can't leave Gotham because he's trapped. So now he figures, and then I don't know. So I guess. We thought that 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 Wayne Manor was abandoned, uh, or that he abandoned Wayne Manor, and somebody tried to rob Wayne Manor and discovered that Bruce Wayne is Batman. Now we got that, but now, but now somehow Vandal Savage has come back. Not only was he living in Wayne Manor, but he hired a butler that he immediately killed. The butler must have been incompetent because he's talking about how bad, how hard it is to get good help, because he literally kills his butler on the very first page. So it just, it just seems. Just seems a little bit too not too over the top, and and now he's going to become police commissioner. That's the big reveal. He's going to because he's trapped in Gotham anyway because of the nature of his new immortality. He can't. The farther he gets away from Gotham, the weaker he gets. So he's got to stay. So I figured while he's there, he's, he might as well be commissioner because the other billionaires, his fellow billionaires, remind remind him or tell him that police commissioner is an appointed position. And of course, only the elites appoint the, uh, who the commissioner is. So, you know, again, I don't, I guess that's interesting having Vandal Savage as the commissioner, but is that, I just, that's such a demotion for Vandal Savage. I can't see him finding any satisfaction being a police commissioner that requires politics, paperwork, dealing with underlings. That's none of that is in Vandal Savage's wheelhouse whatsoever i just, i don't see it at all it just it doesn't ring true i don't even know where this would be going this just seems like a desperate attempt to try to change the status quo it feels like change for the sake of change with no direction uh, i guess i hope i'm wrong but this just seems like i i just i'm not interested in this i just want vandal savage to go somewhere else other than gotham and just you know be written somewhere else by somebody else, to be honest with you. I, I'm just not happy with that. I like love the fail-safe, uh, Chip Sardaski, but I really am not interested in this Vandal Sarge, Savage uh, as commissioner. Sorry, Lyme. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, he seems like such a strange choice for a, a Batman villain. He's just, he, he he's not a street-level villain. Yeah. I mean, he's not, a, he's not a particularly good villain. You know, we've talked about how he's always been sort of power for power's sake. He says as much here, uh, you know, the other elitists of Gotham are talking about, uh, you know, having power and what have you. And he's like, you know, you, you, you get power to have power and, you know, he snaps a guy's neck or whatever. So yeah, he's a mustache twirling villain. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, let's move on. 
Uh, up next, we have Birds of Prey, number four, written by Kelly Thompson. Art is by Leonardo Romero. Colors are by Jordi Belair. Letters by uh, Clayton Cowles. Uh, they're on this uh, crew that Black Canary put together are on Paradise Island, and they're trying to rescue Sin uh, based on Maps Mizuguchi and whatever her – I can't even remember what her new superhero name, Maps from the Future, comes back and says, hey – if you don't rescue Sin from Paradise Island, she's going to die, and all the Amazons are going to die as well. So they don't bother to tell the Amazons. They just go and try to rescue her, and things go horribly, horribly wrong, as we see in this issue. So what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm sounding like a broken record every time I review the, this series. Uh, each issue written by Kelly Thompson, and she's doing a really, uh, really good job. I listened to an interview with Kelly Thompson uh, with uh, on uh, Word Balloon, and uh, she, she was she. I thought she was over apologizing for it because she she so desperately wants to please fans while at the same time she was expressed some frustration saying, don't worry, Barbara Gordon's going to show up, guys. Just relax. Barbara Gordon's coming. Oracle's coming. She's just not in this first story arc. <laughs> so for those people wondering who want Barbara Gordon on the Birds of Prey, don't worry, she's coming. Uh, but uh, Kelly Thompson said something that uh, I was very sympathetic. She goes, you know, it. You know, uh, uh, this is her getting her feet wet, and uh, she wanted to use these characters uh, that that she chose, that she loves. She loves Cassandra Cain and uh, Zealot. This will be Zealot's. Zealot will be leaving the playing field at the end of this uh, first arc. But uh, we're right in the middle of this story here, and I'm loving it. I'm I'm loving this this issue. In this issue alone, Zealot's fighting a bunch of Amazons, and she's killing them, and yet she's not actually killing them because she casts a spell. She's got this magic mythological worm inside her that any anything she kills actually immediately doesn't die comes back to life so she can be as brutal as she wants with the amazons she hates fighting amazons because she feels that they're her fellow warriors but she knows she's got to do this to accomplish the objective of rescuing sin from this megara creature which is one of the mythological furies and uh this megara creature not only wants to possess sin but wants to destroy themiscara uh, meanwhile, we got Cassandra Kane holding her own against Wonder Woman. I think Kelly Thompson has done does a really good job here, sort of scripting the choreography of the fights. I'm not sure how much of it was uh, Kelly Thompson as, uh, advising uh, artist Leonardo Romero to, to draw the scenes he does, or if she left the the fight choreography to Romero himself. But uh, I think it worked. I think it works very well. I I really like the art here. It was. The, the coloring from the beginning of the series has been more subdued. Uh, the Jordi Belair is clearly sort of experimenting with a different maybe uh, coloring style, but it's grown on me. And this, this and and you know what? That's a high compliment. And and you really see it on the covers. The covers the cover itself is a good example of it. I like the the sort of like the Kirby the Kirby sparkle <laughs> in the background. I really like that. And of course, Big Barda of course is a is a Kirby creation. Uh, I love Big Barda, you know, resisting Wonder Woman's magic lasso while yelling the truth, screaming the truth at her, telling her about the danger that Sin is in and that Themyscira is in and that ultimately Wonder, you know, all all the birds of prey are rounded up, incarcerated in Themyscira, and uh, interesting behind the scenes, what we're not shown. Somehow, Batgirl escapes. We're never shown that how Batgirl escapes and uh, frees the the rest of the birds of prey. And meanwhile, Wonder Woman is off off panel. Wonder Woman is incapacitated and defeated by the by this Megara creature. And it ends uh, teasing that there's going to be this ultimate battle between uh, the Birds of Prey and this Megara Fury. And uh, so it teases what's coming up. And I thought, uh, 
I thought it was really well done. Uh, incidentally, some uh, some plot points have been answered. It's revealed that Penelope, the Oracle, was in fact trying to reach Black Canary and trying to. Keep, she was in charge of making sure that Sin had regular communication with Black Canary. But because Penelope is possessed by the Fury, possessed by the Megara, that communication was cut off, and that was one of the reasons why Black Canary knew that something was wrong. And but Nubia never Nubia and the Amazons did not know that Penelope, their Oracle, who's responsible for communication with the outside world was actually possessed by the Megara. So that that explains that. So I like how there's some of these plot points that, uh, that you know, astute readers like us, dare I say, occasionally, uh, the, a lot of this stuff is explained. And so I thought it was, uh, I thought it was well done. And I, uh, you know, again, I, I really, I've, I've been enjoying the art and I'm curious. I, I, well, uh, I, I enjoyed this and I, you know, reading the buzz from other reviewers as well, generally speaking, this has become a series that I think has been generally well received. I think it's selling reasonably well. I get positive buzz at my local comic shop. And most people that in anecdotally, from my experience, a lot of people are enjoying this series. What about yourself? Yeah, I, I agree. Action packed for me. Favorite part is just the fight between Barta and Wonder Woman. There's, um, there's kind of a bluntness to Romero's art style here. Um, a little reminiscent of Kirby. Uh, I'm sure you'd be like, no, don't compare my artwork to Kirby. You know, Kirby's a, a legend or what have you, but you know, there's a, there's a heft to a weight to the art and the, and the line weights and what have you. And so that really works. And yeah, I think that's why Jordy Belair is choosing to color it the way that it is. But it's interesting because a lot of the dialogue, especially when Barta talks, it, it, there's a bluntness to that as well. It's a little different um, sort of dialogue and scripting style than I've seen Kelly Thompson use uh, in, in other projects, whether there's a Marvel work or her work on the cull. Um, and it, you know, it, yeah, it sort of fits the art, the art style. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was every thought, every um, prediction in my head that they were actually going to be able to get sin and get off the Island and actually escape um, and then have to deal with the consequences of Wonder Woman chasing them down. Not what happens at all. <laughs> they don't make it off the Island. Wonder Woman shows how formidable she is. Uh, also, you know, give give a little credit to DC uh, editorial for dropping. You know, this isn't a Wonder Woman title; it's Birds of Prey, but they do drop uh, a line or two in there about kind of the events that are going on in Tom King's Wonder Woman uh, as well, with uh, the Amazons being uh, outlawed and what have you. So, yeah, fantastic series. No idea where it's going to go next, but it does seem like. Ultimately, going up against this Magera entity or what have you, uh, w even though Black Canary chose not to inform the Amazons of what was going on, they're going to end up teaming up to go against this evil god, as it were, uh, regardless of that. So, yeah, I just, I just want to say one correction. It's the Kirby Crackle. I called it the Kirby yeah. Sparkle. Shame on me. It's called the Kirby yeah. Crackle in the background there on the on the cover A. So Kirby Crackle. My apologies to the Jack Kirby fans. <laughs> it is indeed the, the uh, infamous uh, Kirby Crackle, or Notorious, however you want to put it. Uh, all right, on to the last book we're going to talk about in detail, Batman, Santa Claus, Silent Night. This is written by Jeff Parker. The gorgeous art is by Michelle Bandini. Colors by Alex Sinclair. Letters by Pat Brosso. Uh, give us your thoughts on this one. <laughs> I, I, who knew that, that Batman knew Santa Claus? I, I can't believe this. I, I was, I didn't, I, I honestly, I had no idea what to expect from this. I, I really didn't because I, 
I got the sense, I knew that this was a series and I thought this is, this has all the hallmarks of what I would expect a one shot to look like because oh, it's called Batman, Santa Claus, Silent Night. This can't possibly be a series, can it? And yet that's exactly what it is. Uh, but you know, interestingly enough, uh, I gotta say writer Jeff Parker actually manages to weave a tale, working it into DC continuity. Uh, and someone is killing Christmas carolers. <laughs> <laughs> and the victims are, punct are punctured it once in the neck and drained of blood. And it ends up that the main bad guys are the draw or the drag or the, the drog D D R A U G the, the drog or the drogue. And they're sort of like vampire creatures, Nordic vampire creatures, which are, they're a vamp vampiric stain of, of the undead Norsemen. And uh, essentially uh, the, the bat family gets involved and, this uh, lo and behold, one of the characters that comes to that comes to help them out is this Chris person who is uh, who's riding a reindeer named Prancer. He looks exactly like Santa Claus. Uh, Batman calls upon Zatanna because he feels that there's some mysticism involved and some magic. And it ends up that Zatanna does know something about Nordic mythology and she recognizes the what what likely what type of vampiric creatures they are they rule out it can't be man bat because that was their first uh, suspect because man bat apparently was was uh otherwise occupied and so uh it's there's a there's a hell of a great scene uh that where it it looks like santa claus riding prancer basically stakes one of these man bat looking drogue vampires through the chest and it, it really is amazing it looks like this is probably the coolest looking Santa Claus I've ever seen. The last time I saw Santa Claus look this cool, I, I would have to say uh, it was uh, by Claus by Grant Morrison. And I got I got his Kickstarter. Uh, quick plug for Grant Morrison's Kickstarter campaign called Claws. I ordered the hardcover, which I'm hopefully going to get before Christmas. But uh, that's the last time I saw a cool looking Santa Claus. But this... this uh, this Santa Claus character, he's going to help them out, basically battle these, these vampiric-like creatures. And uh, the art here is just fantastic. Michelle, uh, Mich Michelle Bandini. Forgive my ignorance. Is that a, is that a man or a woman? Mich Michelle I Bandini. Don't know. <laughs> don't know. I, <laughs> okay. no, I don't. Well, I, I assume it's a male I, I, yeah. or a female, rather. Well, Okay, but, well, I, I'm assuming it's a man. If not, I apologize. But it's, the art's fantastic. Alex Sinclair and the colors. It, this is absolutely gorgeous. I'm it, actually, is a, it is a Italian. He is an Italian comic book artist that's done a lot of work for Marvel. Okay. Well, so it, is, uh, it is a he. Uh, fantastic art, uh, Mr. Bandini. And, you know, the origin here that this, that this Chris is not actually Santa Claus, but he was a craftsman who back in the day – ended up uh, battling these creatures and, and ended up uh, ended up in battling these creatures uh, basically capturing and subduing this Krampus uh, this this Krampus beast man this that and this Krampus character beast is is the beast that has returned seeking revenge and 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 so back in the day back in the old days this this craftsman, this wild hunter, this Chris, this wild hunter craftsman, he, he made toys for the children to apologize for the children that they were terrorized by this Krampus character that he failed to 
uh, stop uh, in a timely fashion. And that's where the legend of Christmas apparently began in the uh, in this particular story of the DC universe. And but in any event, I thought it was very well. I thought it was very well. Done. It was actually entertaining. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm thinking to myself, it this could. I don't know, this could arguably even work as being part of DC continuity. It probably isn't. Uh, but yet at the same time, this is about as close as you can get to actually fitting into DC continuity. And anyway, put a smile on my face. Fantastic art. I love it. And I'll be picking up this series for Christmas because I'm actually glad that this isn't an, antholo an anthology. I think this is, uh, I thought this was really well done. What about yourself? Yeah, I, didn't, I I thought it was kind of a one shot too. I didn't know what to expect, but yeah, um, starting with the uh, amazing art um, by uh, Mr. Bandini, uh, yeah, it's just fun. But Jeff Parker gets a little bit of a different voice and and dynamic between the relationship between Bruce and Damien here, which I'm all for. Love uh, Zatanna, both in terms of the way she's written by Parker, and wow, absolutely gorgeous rendering by bandini uh it's just a lot of fun it's just a lot of fun uh reminds me has a little bit of a um of a little grant morrison claws vibe to it if you if anybody's familiar with that series that morrison's uh done or done did in the past with dan mora celebrating christmas time so yeah it's just it's just fun um dick grayson and backroll show up here as well barbara gordon backroll um you mentioned the origin that we get of, of kind of this version of, um, of of Santa Claus, who's not really Santa Claus, uh, and then the Krumpus. You know, another Christmas legend is is being um, mentioned here. So the only thing I, I don't know. Let me let me look it up real quick because I do want to confirm um, based on the fact that this isn't just a one shot, like we said. Um, is it all coming out in? in december yeah it looks right. like it is every week got, every week yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. yeah issue two comes out next week issue three the following week huh? uh and issue four uh on the day after christmas so yeah it's basically a weekly uh christmas series for for dc so that's uh that's fantastic uh all right that does it like i said for single issues that we're going to talk about there is also scooby-doo where are you number issue 125 and the blue beetle series uh, has its Spanish edition as well. And then in terms of collections, we have Batman volume five fear state, which uh, continues the uh, tie in run collects Batman's uh, one through 12 uh, through 117. Then we've got the Batman Catwoman trade paperback. That's the Tom King written Clayman drawn series that sort of finishes up sort of what it would, it would have done had he not been taken off the uh, Batman series when he was. Also, the, there's an omnibus for Batman Eternal. That was the weekly series from back in, I think it was 2014 or 2015. Um, it collects all 52 issues uh, of that. So if, if you never read it, it's okay. Um, I think it's the first time we see Lincoln March, if I'm not mistaken, is in that series. Uh, speaking of Tom King and collections, we have Batman Killing Tide. Time trade paperback, which was a fantastic series, starting the Riddler and Penguin shows up there, Catwoman as well, and of course Batman, David Marquez is on art, it's a really fun series, Zatanna the Ripper, Volume 2 which collects episodes 12 through 13 of the Zatanna and the Ripper uh, Webtoon series and there's also the Vixen NYC Webtoon series that gets its third trade paperback which collects episodes 20 through 28 of that Webtoon series 
And then finally, Arkham Maniacs is a, a YA graphic novel, uh, or I guess all ages really, because it's by uh, Art and Franco, uh, if you're familiar with their Tiny Titans. Uh, it's kind of in that vein, starring uh, some all ages versions of the uh, a lot of the Bat villains. You got Joker, you got Harley, you got uh, Penguin. So uh, that is out this week as well. So uh, Rocky... Book of the week is it is an easy pick? Is it? It's tough an easy, it was an easy pick for me actually, uh, and it's uh, Birds of Prey number four. Uh, Shazam is pretty close behind it, but I I just you know I I just I, I love I love Birds of Prey. I just thought it was so so well done. I continue to really enjoy it. What Kelly taught. It just feels like such a breath of fresh air, and it's just it's action packed. It's funny. It's humorous. Uh, she nails the characters, I think. Uh, and I, while I do have some nitpicks, I actually they're 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 so minor that it's just it, it's it's a it's a question of of degree, and it's just it's it's unimportant. I'm just I'm thoroughly enjoying it. I do subscribe to her uh, uh, a newsletter as well, and I thank you for that. You gave me a guest uh, monthly membership, and I've stuck with it. Uh, uh, I've become a paying subscriber to Kelly Thompson's newsletter, and I'm glad I I do and reading enjoying her call uh, the call and other series and what have you. So. I thank you for that, my friend. And yeah, this is, uh, she's doing a really good job here in Birds of Prey. So, uh, yeah, it's fan- fantastic series. I also gave Shazam some uh, consideration as well, but it is the holiday season. It is fantastic, fantastic art from Michelle Bandini. Uh, and Jeff Parker's story is fun. So I'm going with uh, Batman, Santa Claus, Silent Night. Uh, yeah, maybe it's just my love of Christmas or how beautiful Zatanna is drawn, but, uh, but that one gets my nod for the week. We'll see if that is, we'll see if it can make it a clean sweep for the month. Uh, we'll see how issue two is next week. So, uh, well, that does it for this episode, everybody. Hope you're having a joyous holiday season. Be sure to join us next week. And, uh, also we'll have the 12 days of the comic source starting up soon as well. So we appreciate you listening. Uh, as always, if you are, uh, listening to us on the audio only, be sure you head over to Rocky's YouTube channel and subscribe, ring the notification bell, leave some comments on your thoughts on this week's books. Uh, but you want to be sure to be subscribed to the channel. That way you don't miss out on any of uh, the content that's being put out there. Comic space, boom, exclamation point, and you'll have no trouble finding it. Conversely, if you are watching us on YouTube uh, and you're curious about the 12 days of the comic source, other Uh, interviews and what have you that come out on the audio only portion just go to whatever platform you uh, enjoy getting your podcasts on do a search for the comic source and subscribe so that's going to do it for this episode we appreciate the support as always everybody and we will talk to you next time catch you later you can find the comic source podcast on spotify apple podcast stitcher google play or whichever podcasting app you prefer please tell all your friends about us subscribe and rate us The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.